The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 13, the first seven verses. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You're old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines, and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northwards to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mirah, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, towards the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misrephoth Mayim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, pity us, we pray. We come to you needy and helpless, yet hopeful that just as you've promised the nations to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for an inheritance, and just as you've granted that inheritance to us in him as his body, so we come with confidence that now you will speak to us, teaching us how we should live so as to inherit that inheritance to his glory and for the good of the world. So please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in this, your word, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And let me um, add my welcome to that uh, earlier, especially to the family of Annika and Shiloh and little Etta. It is wonderful to have you with us. We've got some family and friends and other visitors. What a joy to see uh, the formal welcome of one more covenant child into the people of God. We are delighted for you. And we're thrilled to have you guys with us. Uh, we hope you enjoy your time with us. And as Mr. Capone said earlier, if you're able to stick around uh, after the service for lunch, we have plenty of food for you. So it will be a blessing to us if you can. In previous years, previous decades probably for many of you, you will have voted in many, many elections. Maybe you've gone with high hopes. Maybe you've been praying. Maybe you even had a Christian candidate on your ballot paper. Maybe you had a man or a woman who loved his country, who loved the Constitution, and maybe occasionally, just occasionally, you were pleased with the result. But probably, I'm guessing, more often than not, perhaps you were disappointed, at least disappointed somewhere. This November, same again. Millions of voters will take to the polls, and you should, I think, if you can, uh, go and vote. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives, a third of the Senate, Senate, loads of state governors, our own state governorship currently held by Greg Abbott. They're all up for grabs along with a whole bunch of other posts. And you will go, I'm sure, with high hopes, voting for your, maybe, principled, constitution-loving Christian candidate, and perhaps, perhaps some of your hopes will be fulfilled. But I'm afraid to say, probably, many of them will be dashed, if not at the polls or immediately thereafter, in the months and years that follow when you see the inevitable 
outworking of yet another election. And so you might reasonably ask, Lord, why do we have to put up with this? Lord, why don't you just give us a Christian government? Why not take some people from the church, some faithful, wise men and women of integrity, and give them political power? Fill Congress, Lord, and fill the White House with men and women of experience and diplomacy and wisdom and Christ-likeness, that we may not be governed anymore in this shambolic way that leaves us disappointed and perpetually frustrated as we observe public life. We all know, or we should know, that it will happen someday. As the gospel grows and spreads across the earth, the kingdom of God, which is like the rock that swells in size to become a mountain and fills the whole, the whole earth, the kingdoms of this world are becoming and have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And therefore, all the structures of society, educational structures, commercial structures, charitable structures, governmental structures, every knee will bow. Jesus must reign, or more, more properly, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Jesus must continue to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And that quote from Psalm 110, also quoted in Acts 2, when that reign began, as Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father, he's already reigning now. He will continue to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And then the last enemy to be destroyed at the general resurrection is death, which means that in this period of history in which we're now in, one day we'll have a Christian government. Won't that be wonderful? So, why not now? Why not November? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be great? Aren't you ready? Quick show of hands. You're feeling rather muted this morning. Wouldn't it be wonderful, truly, seriously wonderful, if little Etta Gill grow up, grows up, were to grow up, never knowing a day when the president didn't love Jesus? Why would the Lord not do that? Well, this question, like many other questions about the growth of the gospel and about the shape of history and about uh, what I think is best to call eschatology, which is not just the doctrine of the last things, but the doctrine of the whole of human history. This question, like many others, is answered in the book of Joshua. And it is to this question that I want to turn your attention today. You remember, and I'm, let me just do a quick recap um, of where we've got to in the book of Joshua, because I'm conscious we've got a bunch of visitors here, and throwing you into the middle of Joshua 13 is a little unfair. You know, it's a slightly... For some of you, you go to a church where it's a little bit different from this, and then Joshua 13, are you kidding me? Life, life, eternal life. Flee for the hills. What are these people doing? So Joshua 13, I probably should explain how we've got here. Um, the big picture of the book of Joshua looks something like this. In the book of Joshua, God gives the land of Canaan as an inheritance to his people under the leadership of their great leader, Joshua, whose name means Jesus in Hebrew. And the book itself shows how they were supposed to live so as to gain and be blessed in their inheritance. In the same way, or in a similar way, the Lord God of heaven and earth has given all the nations of the world as an inheritance to his son, Joshua, Jesus. And he now commands the church to conquer the land, so to speak, to go out with the sword of the Spirit, speaking the word of the gospel, to bring every knee to bow, willingly or unwillingly, before the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Joshua is of profound significance for the church because it shows us all about our history and all about what we're supposed to do as the church as we seek to bring the nations 
joyfully under the rule of Joshua, Jesus. And so you remember, as we've gone through, we've seen lots of little cameos of this. Chapter 2, the book, um, the, near the beginning of the book, with um, Rahab, where we learn that the great men probably won't help us. We're probably going to rely on uh, a newly converted pagan former prostitute to help us get into the land in the first place. Well, there's a thought. And then chapters 3 and 4, that the conquest begins with worship. The crossing of the Jordan itself is depicted as a worship liturgy. And then chapter 5, you've got the first thing they do when they get there is circumcise all the men. Well, why would you do that? Well, it's because the sacraments which God has given to his people are not to be dispensed with. They're vitally important. So you see what we're doing? We're building up this picture of how we're supposed to go about discipling the nations. Chapter 7, with the account of Achan, we discover the terrible danger that lurks if we succumb to our own selfish desires. The conquest of the nations could be halted, at least temporarily, if we don't overcome our own self-aggrandizement and greed and desire for power and wealth and everything that Achan wanted. And then from chapter 10 onwards, we have, well, we've started really to see a typological picture in the book of Joshua of the church's triumph. Basically, you've got this tremendously positive picture of Israel's history in Canaan in their early days, which is a type, like a, uh, I say typological picture, it just means like a, like a, a foretaste, uh, a prequel of the church's triumph through the gospel. It shows us, chapter 10, that you have this comprehensive victory. In chapter 11, you've got these ungodly nations being shattered before the onslaught of the people of God led by the Lord. Just as in our day and a millennium ago and for many millennia in the future, ungodly nations will be shattered one way or another by the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if the kings of the earth don't bow the knee before him willingly, they will do so unwillingly one way or another. Western civilization probably has to die so that it can be resurrected. Well, good riddance to Western civilization. Let's have Christian civilization, shall we? Chapter 11, verse 20, well, middle of chapter 11, you've got the, the little note that suggests that even the fruits of the ungodly nations of the world will somehow be harvested in the kingdom of God. And all these little elements that, that, that build together to a picture of what the church's job is. Then at the end of chapter 11, I love this verse, 11.23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, this comprehensive, triumphant moment, which is then sort of fleshed out in chapter 12, where you've got this long list of all these kings who've been defeated. It's like, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it tremendous that we see this victory? Now, we noted this last week, there's still work to do, because all these conquered cities in the second half of chapter 12 represent, well, kind of ruined conquered cities, which we've got to get to work building the Christian culture. But isn't it wonderful that we've won this great victory? Aren't you ready to rule? Isn't the church now triumphant? Hasn't all authority in heaven and on earth been given to Joshua? Aren't we now ready to take the reins of power and begin to rule? Lord, why wouldn't you give us just a remarkable, transformative result in the November midterms, for example? Well, if that's your hope, then I have to say it is likely to be shattered, baseball bat in the face style, by chapter 13, verse 1. Just, just look down at what's happened. This is the big transition between the second major section in the book, the conquest section, and the third section, the allocation of land section. And the first thing you need to know when you come to allocate the land to the people of God it's chapter 13, verse 1. Joshua was old and advanced in years. He's probably um, close to death, 110 or something. He was 110 years old when he died. Um, 
He, uh, he was 19 during the Exodus and 20 during the, um, the, the year after the Exodus. You can work that out because of the censuses that he appears in and doesn't appear in. Don't worry about it. Ask me later. But anyway, one way or another, he's been at this for 50 years or so since the conquest. You are old and well advanced in years, the Lord says to him. Thank you, Lord. So are you. And there remains smack. Very much land still to possess. Just when you thought you'd won, just when you thought you were victorious, just when you thought your king was on the throne. And then you've got this long list in verses 2 through um, 6 of all these places. I'm not going to read them all to you. Um, you thought the battle was won. You thought that all the people of God needed to do was to ask and will receive, so to speak, the reins of power. And you're wrong. At least Joshua and his people were wrong. It looks like and this is the key, really, to today's text. The Lord has deliberately left large numbers of pagan nations in the land. He's left political power in the hands of the world so that his people may not yet take it. It's obvious, right, from all these regions that are not yet conquered. And in a similar way, perhaps this explains why the Lord does not appear at the moment to have given the White House and the Congress to his people. I want to suggest that this does at least contribute to that explanation. And what we find, this, this text actually, is, it lies at the intersection of lots of different threads of the Bible, which we're going to have to chase down back into Exodus and Deuteronomy and forward into the book of Judges. And when we've chased them down, we will find there are three distinct reasons hinted at here and expounded elsewhere that highlight why the Lord has not given us the reins of power yet. Why the Lord has not given comprehensive rule to his people in Joshua chapter 13. There are three reasons. I want to explore them each in turn. Uh, first, uh, it's his judgment on his people. Second, he's done it to protect his people. And then thirdly, he's done it to test his people. I want to spend most time on the first couple, so don't worry if we're, time is pressing on. We'll accelerate really rapidly through the third one, and you won't know it's begun before it's ended, and then we can just don't worry if the time looks like it's pressing on. The first reason then, in other words, why the Lord has left these pagan nations apparently untouched is as God's judgment upon his people. His people deserve it because of their ungodliness. He's left them there as thorns in their sides. We know this because Joshua chapter 13, verse 1, looks forward to the beginning of the next stage of history and my favorite book in the whole Bible, the book of Judges. Just keep your finger in Joshua 13, which you see, Joshua is old and well advanced in years. Flip forward a few pages to Judges chapter 1 and you'll see what I mean if you've got your Bible open. Judges chapter 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua, and then the narrative continues. And you know the narrative of the book of Judges? The book of Judges is a description of the next 350 years or so between the death of Joshua and the beginning of stable monarchical government in the book of First and Second Samuel. So basically you've got from about 1400 BC to about just before 1000 BC. Saul, then, then David, and then um, Solomon. And the, the book of Judges tracks through that era. Now what's really intriguing, go back to Joshua 13, is that the major threat throughout the era of the book of Judges is which nation? Just look at chapter 3. 
Sorry, chapter 13, verse 2. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of who? Ah, the Philistines. We remember the Philistines, right? They're the ones who Shamgar, the great hero of the end of Judges 3, has to fight against. They're the ones who Deborah and Barak, for what it's worth, which is to say not much, but Deborah was awesome, in chapter 4, Judges 4, has to stand against Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, which is part of the Philistine region. In chapter 8, Jephthah, the rejected brother, is called back because of the Philistines. And of course, the climax of the kind of cycle of the Judges, chapters 13 through 16, Samson spends four chapters dealing with which nation? The Philistines. In fact, the Philistines are only finally banished by David hundreds of years later in 1 Samuel when David and Goliath, he's, he's a Philistine uh, captain, and it's only after the death of Goliath that really the nation of Israel has rest. 400 years, these people, this is the land that yet remains that you haven't conquered, and these are the people who live in it, the Philistines, for four centuries, they are going to be there. And you only need to look in the book of Judges to see why the Lord left them there. The book of Judges tells the story of a repeated and depressing cycle. Twelve times what happens is the people of Israel, they, they begin at, at rest, so to speak, somewhat settled, although in scattered communities. And then they sin against God. And the Lord acts in judgment against them by raising up their enemies against them. Often it's the Philistines, sometimes it's other people. And then they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord acts in mercy to send a judge to them, and then finally they have rest again. So you start with rest and then sin. The Lord acts in judgment, raising up their enemies. And uh, they cry out to God. He sends them a judge, and then they have rest. And then the whole cycle repeats again after the death of the judge. Round and round and round it goes again. Again, again, and again, and again. Twelve times. It's the most frustrating book in the Bible. And really, it mirrors the history of the church. It mirrors the history of our lives. Just when you thought you'd got there, like, I don't know, um, mid-16th century Geneva or mid-17th century England or, well, various points in the history of America. Just when you thought you'd got there, again and again and again the people of God sinned against him. So why has the Lord left the nations in the land? Well, it's very simple. He's going to need them. Because when you sin, which you will, he's going to need somebody to raise up in judgment against you. The story of the book of Judges is a story that begins here in Joshua 13, verse 1 and 2, where the Lord knows exactly what's going to happen. And he leaves these nations there to chastise and discipline his people. And it's interesting, it gives you a sense of kind of, it's almost existential angst and frustration and tension because you read through the book of Judges really fast but they lived through it really slowly it's a really long time span in the book of Judges hundreds of years and you just like you get like four or five cycles in and it just drives you nuts like why don't they just learn and then you just think hold on a second why why don't I just learn and that experience you've had that experience right of looking back at when was it, I don't know, Tuesday night or Wednesday lunchtime or maybe yesterday, and you look back with shame at your foolishness. I don't know what it was. It would have been something. And I I think this is part of the purpose for Joshua, the narrative of Joshua making it so stark, where you've got at the end of chapter 11, Joshua took the whole land. Beginning of chapter 13, there remains very much land to possess, because as you read this, there's this literary tension. You can resolve it, I think, historically. I think you can, it makes sense historically, but 
The experience of the reader as they're reading the book of Joshua mirrors our own experience if we're actually sensitive to the rebukes of the Lord. When we look back, and there I did it again, didn't I? Again. The nations remained in the land for the same reason that we, for generations, have languished under imperfect rulers and in imperfect situations as God's judgment against us. And I think we have to face the painful reality. Um, every time, and there are, there are reasons why we do this, every time we contemplate the incompetence, the lack of integrity of many, not all, but many, of the civil authorities that we are ruled by, we must face the painful reality that this may be because of our and our forefathers' faithlessness. Remember, I remember thinking back in 2016, um, before my family and I moved here, and just looking at the choices you were presented with, and thinking, there must be somebody <laughs> who would be an improvement on both of those candidates. Did that occur to anybody? I'm sure it did. Why would the Lord have given you that choice? I think we have to face the, the painful reality, which means that what's really called for is not so much a particular voting strategy. I mean, if that's your choice, you know, to hell with strategy. Right? What's required is repentance and patience. You know, three or four generations of those who hate me so that the thousand generations of those who love me can roll around and maybe we need to wait three or four generations. I don't know. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I do, I do think, literally, for America's sake, Return to the Lord, for America's sake, for the sake of your countrymen and women, the, the people that my family and I chose to move to live among, the place we're coming to love. Search your heart and purify it by God's grace of those desires of which you're so ashamed. God will not give you power until you do. There's a chilling moment in, um, towards the end of uh, 2 Samuel where you see something a little bit like this. I mean, the, the Lord giving people wicked and foolish rulers because of their sin. It's uh, 2 Samuel 24 when the Lord is angry with Israel, it says in verse 1. So what he did was to incite David, their king, to act foolishly in taking a census. Now, what's wrong with the census? Let's, let's talk about that another time. But anyway, even Joab knows that this is a really dumb idea, and he's pleading with David, don't do it, David, don't do it, this is terrible, this is really stupid. And David just goes ahead and does it anyway. And the Lord brings this plague on Israel. How has he done it? By inciting even King David to act foolishly and in an ungodly way, because he's angry with his people. His people have sinned, so he's given them the kind of ruler, temporarily in that case, that they deserved. Yikes. How angry must he be with us? Now, I, I, we've got to just draw some uh, theological boundaries around this a little bit. It's not the case that we can look at a particular nation and the political rulers it has right now and infer, right, well, the church there right now must be really wicked. You know, Ukraine and Russia and China, well, they must be really, really wicked because look at the political mess. You know, no, I, the Lord has a complex and tangled way of weaving together history. But in broad terms, over many generations, the Lord acts in judgment against 
wicked and ungodly people by giving them the wickedness and ungodliness that they've chosen in the form of the people who rule them. So that sometimes you sit in disbelief and think, is this really the best that we could come up with? And it's not. It's the, the thing that God decided we deserved. So the nations remained in the land as God's judgment on his people. That's the first reason. Second, and this one really took me by surprise, when I realized how significant a theme this was, I was, wow, this is, this is quite something. The nations remained in the land not just to chastise Israel, be there ready to be raised up, to invade every time the people of the Lord turned to idolatry and wickedness. The Lord actually left the people, the pagans in the land, to protect his people. That's the second reason. And it emerges very plainly, if you're reading through the whole Bible, if you're really paying attention, and in fact, I've actually, I've name-dropped these couple of texts mm, a couple of times in the last three months, so if you've been really paying attention, you would have noticed, I mentioned uh, Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7. Hands up, come on, honestly. Did you, anybody? I'll have to show you again then. If you've been reading through really carefully, turn to Exodus 23 and ask yourself the question, why did the nations remain in the land after this first generation? Well, Exodus uh, Exodus 23, verse 29 I will not drive them out from before you in one year. I won't do it. Why not? Well, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. You see the point. The Lord isn't going to do it all at once. Why not? Because we wouldn't be able to cope with the chaos that will be left behind. Wild beasts in this case. You get the same theme in Deuteronomy 7. Just flip over to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 22. The Lord, your God, and you know, both these texts, they're they're sometime before uh, Exodus, 40 years before Deuteronomy, about one year before the the, the, um, beginning of the conquest. Deuteronomy 7, 22. The Lord, your God, will clear away these nations before you. And you're like, yes, little by little. Oh, You may not make an end of them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. It's really intriguing. And then you realize what that means. There are two million Israelites, okay? That's a lot of people to inhabit a fairly small area in late Bronze Age Israel. But the, the numbers were not the problem. So why would it be that the people of Israel were unable to cope with mountain lions and all those other wild beasts, bears and other things that were in the land? The answer is because they're so completely disorganized and probably so completely preoccupied with other things that they want not to be bothered by that they can't stably sustain the basic infrastructure of the country they're moving into. If the Lord just clears everything out, then you're just going to get wild animals invading and the people of Israel won't have the competence to sort it out. So they lack the wisdom, they lack the strength, they lack the organization, they lack everything they need, and so the Lord leaves the Canaanites in power to protect Israel. Just think about that for a second. You're so incompetent, O house of Israel, that we'd be better off with Goliath and his chums. We'd be better off with pagans. And Martin Martin Luther is sometimes criticized. I think it's Martin Luther who's reputed to have said, I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk, meaning a Muslim, than a foolish Christian. And we all think, oh, yeah, but that's so unreasonable. Because all the Christians would be really wise. Well, 
When you press the implications of this, you start to realise, I mean, okay, so wild beasts. Wild beasts are not really a problem in, well, maybe they are in Texas. I mean, there are things that fly around here that two inches long that could put you in hospital for a week, I've discovered. Not that I've been, but you know what I mean. In England, there's nothing bigger than like this, and all it can make you do is like, ow, that hurt, but here, goodness gracious. Slithery things and flying, stinging things that, oof. Anyway, it's not really the wild beasts that are the issue. If you think, what are the basic functions of statecraft that need to be performed in order to secure a functioning nation? And there are loads of things. There are loads of things, which in ancient Bronze Age Israel, it's like, keep the lions out. In modern economies, there's so much to do, which actually needs, whatever we think of government bureaucrats, and we have one or two government bureaucrats here. Sorry, I won't tell anybody who they are. But, um, need doing, and need doing competently. And it's really alarming when you consider that the Lord evidently doesn't think we're ready to take those responsibilities on, especially when you realize how bad our secular rulers sometimes are. Think of some things that have frustrated you with modern public life. And consider what the Lord must think of the church if he thinks we're not ready to take over because we lack the competence to do so. For example, basic things like personal moral integrity. Blue and red, you know, Clinton, Trump. On all sides... Modern secular politics is capable of reprehensible failures of basic morality, correct? And of course, if we had a Christian in the White House, we'd never have a repeat of the Lewinsky affair, would we? Hmm. When it, I've shared with you before some of those alarming statistics about pornography. Um, when you ask, if you get survey data, uh, and you survey Christians and you survey non-Christians, you ask them about their pornography usage, Christians report lower rates of usage. But then, you can be clever, you see. What you do is you survey actual subscriptions to pornographic websites and so on, and you correlate the data geographically with church attendance. And you discover that Christians consume pornography at a higher rate than the bulk of the population. That's not my opinion. That's just, like, that is just the data. Um, the data gets really intriguing because it turns out that um, subscriptions drop slightly in those high church attendance areas on Sunday. So apparently, Christians are sufficiently moved by having been at church in the morning not to sign up in the afternoon, but they more than make up for it between Monday and Saturday. So, of course, the Lord looks at that and thinks, hmm, <laughs> I think we'd rather have Clinton than you know, drag the name of the Lord Jesus through the mud by having a believer do that. Or think of the kind of inflammatory and provocative and ignorant rhetoric, which has been so commonplace in recent years. I mean, the, one of the most fashionable things to bemoan in the public square has been the, the, the quality of public debate. Yeah? And you have uh, world leaders making ignorant, deliberately provocative, foolish, sometimes just patently untrue statements in public. I read another one just the other day. I'm not going to tell you who it was because you probably read a dozen yourself. You don't need me to. And right, so Christians would never do that. Because every time a Christian leader stands up and says anything in public, it's always gracious and accurate and well-reasoned and not inflammatory at all and perfectly wise and thoughtful and principled. And Yeah, right. Can you see? Like, what, why would the Lord give power to people like, well, us? Partisanship and divisiveness 
all driven by self-interest everywhere in politics. But there's no politics that stinks like church politics, I can tell you. I've not been a minister that long, but I've been a minister long enough to see that. John, um, John Frame wrote a really intriguing article, uh, again, I've mentioned this before, um, called Machen's Warrior Children. It's a ref- the Machen reference is a reference to Gresham Machen, a great Reformed theologian of the mid-20th century, who, but who, whose spiritual children, so to speak, had a spirit of combativeness, which led, in John Frame's opinion, to no less than 21 different areas of rancorous and bitter disagreement with accusations of heresy and denying the gospel and everything else over the next two, three, four decades. And all of it, John Frame says, was completely unnecessary and wouldn't have happened if people were reasonable and gracious and thoughtful enough just to talk and to listen to each other. Instead, people are driven by self-aggrandizement and self-interest. And this is people in the church. So let's be honest. Like, would we really improve public life? Really? I... I I'm not obviously pointing the finger at anybody any more than I'm pointing it at me. But just looking at the data, is there any good reason to think that the church would be able to handle the responsibility of government with greater maturity and wisdom than our current political overlords? I think that there are, we could get fairly... Um, what would he say? Um, specific about this. Let me give you just one example, and this is tangentially related, but nonetheless related. I had a conversation with a local Baptist pastor a week or two ago um, about the problem of overconsumption of alcohol among Christians. Now, this gentleman, is a, he's been a pastor for a very long time. Uh, he was very frank. He said, there's nothing in our church constitution that prohibits alcohol consumption. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits it. We don't have any like, requirement that people don't drink alcohol, but I don't touch the stuff, and nobody else in my church pretty much ever does. And I said, well, well, why not? And he said, well, we have just seen too many lives ruined, many, many lives ruined by overconsumption of alcohol. And I was thinking about it because, actually, this is a very interesting dynamic in that relationships with local Baptist churches because over the years we've had a number of folks we've seen uh, embrace Presbyterian reformed doctrinal convictions coming out of a kind of Baptist background and one of the things that um, is actually something of a delight I think and uh, by the way I speak as the greatest fan of single malt whiskey in this room and if anybody wants to no challenge me um, ask my kids I mean but one of the things that happens is that we, we have the joy of embracing that freedom. And it's, a, it's such a blessing. The good gifts of God's creation. The wonderful gifts of... We've been set free from, I think, what I'd want to say, with due respect, my Baptist pastor friend, is an unnecessarily restrictive uh, vision of the Christian life. But how do we use our freedom? Really? Really, how do we use our freedom? Particularly in that area. I, I, I don't know, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but I think, likely, there's a distribution among us, and at one end of the distribution, we probably need some soul-searching. Because we need to learn to govern ourselves. And as a wise man once said, if you don't govern yourself, you'll never be fit to govern others. Why would the Lord give government to people who can't 
govern themselves. You're sitting in a room with a bunch of guys smoking cigars, and, even, and whenever you fi- I guarantee it, whenever you finish your glass, somebody else will still be drinking. You will have to be the first to stop. Otherwise, I'm not driving home with you. And I suggest you don't drive home at all. I was chatting with a young lady, a uh, member of this church, actually, I won't tell you who it is, just a, a few days ago, went out for dinner at their house, and uh, there was a wonderful illustration of this. And we almost finished, so let me just share this illustration, then we'll make one final point from the book of Joshua. Um, I asked what I often ask young children, I said, um, uh, what's your, what are you reading at the moment? And she said, obviously, Narnia, because she's like, she's under 10, right? So, so, so I said, uh, so which is your favorite Narnia book? She said, I like Prince Caspian. I thought, that's interesting. Not the London Witch in the Wardrobe, not the Last Battle. So why do you like Prince Caspian? And she said, and I quote, because Prince Caspian has to grow up so that he's ready to become king. Priceless. Isn't that brilliant? Maybe we need to grow up so that we're ready to be kings. One final brief point, and we're back in um, Joshua 13. Um, the resonance with the book of Judges continues down to Judges chapter 3. And you can turn to it if you like. This is going to take just one minute or so. Judges chapter 3, the Lord outlines one more reason while, why he has left these nations in the land. He enumerates them again, chapter 3, Judges 3, verse 1. These are the nations that the Lord left. And the list of nations is pretty much the same as the list of nations in Joshua 13, but now he gives another reason why they're there, to test Israel by them. Verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. That's the third reason. I submit to you that this is very likely the third reason why we'll be disappointed in November. Because we are being left in an imperfect political situation to test our faithfulness to God. Because if we cannot discipline ourselves and live with godliness and patience and grace and self-discipline and wisdom under difficult circumstances, there is not the slightest chance we are ready for the responsibilities of ruling a nation. And therefore, the Lord will not give them to us. He will give them to other people for all these reasons. So if you love your country, and I'm, like I said, I'm coming to love your country. I'm thrilled to be here. Not stop loving jolly old England. Don't we all love the places we live? Some of you have connections with other nations. Greek, half Greek mother and from Puerto Rico and for the sake of those places that you love don't do what the people of Israel did they served their gods end of verse 6 no no what's needed I'm afraid is repentance let's pray shall we Merciful Father, this repentance that we need is both a gift found only in Christ, the righteous one, and something which we must work out, Philippians chapter 2. So we ask that you give to us that grace so that by your Spirit, we and 
doubtless, as in Joshua's case, in fact, those many generations from now may be found able to manifest Christ's authority over the nations in new ways. Teach us, we pray. Discipline us. Chastise us where necessary that we may grow in Christ-likeness. For in our sane moments, this is what we desire above all else. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.